this evening, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And there, the Apostle Paul now shifts gears out of the pastoral prayer that he has just informed the Ephesians that he had been praying for them, that they would know the hope of their calling, that they would know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints, and that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe according to the working of his great power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And now Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk In them, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, when I was a boy, my mom would often tell us about a museum just outside of the main line of Philadelphia where we grew up called the Barnes Museum. And the Barnes Museum was owned, it was a a collection of some of the finest paintings in the world owned by a very, very wealthy businessman and philanthropist. And, and the Barnes Museum gained uh, lots of respect and admiration and became sort of an iconic symbol of, of the love for art and the desire to preserve art. But one of the interesting things about the Barnes Museum was that uh, Mr. Barnes had asked that when he died, none of the paintings be touched up or doctored in any way or cured or in any way whatsoever touched. And over the years, as the collections grew, many of the very fine works of art were put down in a basement by in a boiler room. And what happened over the years was that the charcoal um, from the boiler room would start to, to, to cover these beautiful paintings in the basement of the Barnes Museum, so much so that many of them were completely marred and ruined by the, um, by the blackness that had covered the surface of those paintings. And just a few years ago, very interestingly, the museum and those, the board of the museum, broke Barnes's wishes not to touch any of the paintings because out of a great act of kindness and mercy, they deci- decided to resuscitate and to salvage those paintings. And so they hired some of the, fa- the most well-respected um, uh, men and women who could restore these paintings with great gentleness and care and bring them to their original place of glory and beauty. Now, I think if Barnes were alive today, he would probably be thankful for what 
they've done in salvaging these paintings that are now worth millions and millions and millions of dollars and that people can enjoy again all over the world because they've been resuscitated and the blackness has been re removed from them. Now, I tell you that because probably the greatest illustration of what God does for us in redemption and the spiritual resurrection that we must undergo if we're believers is that God takes his image and that image that was in us at creation that was so full of glory and beauty has been, has been completely tarnished and marred by the blackness of sin. And even though our wish would be that no one touches us in that natural fallen state, and though we wish to just be left alone, it is a great act of kindness and mercy and grace that God decides, I will go and I will bring them from death to life and I will remove the blackness and I will restore that image that was so marred and corrupted and they will again be a beautiful workmanship. They will again be a mark of my great and glorious craftsmanship in Jesus Christ. And essentially, Paul is telling us about how God restores his image in us. He is reminding us of what we were. He is reminding us of the wretched condition that we were in apart from Christ. He is reminding us then of the greatness of the mercy of God in Christ. And then on top of that, he is reminding us of the greatness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, you might think it's strange if you're reading through Ephesians and you're, you've read everything that Paul has said. Paul burst on the scenes in chapter 1 with that, that glorious benediction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he has enumerated every one of those seven blessings that we have in Jesus Christ culminating in the glory that God has awaiting for us. And then he has prayed that God would do yet a greater work in opening the eyes of the hearts of his people so that they could see all the glorious things that God is doing in them and wants them to be able to see, even though they have already had their eyes open to see it, that they would see more of the glories, that they would see more of what they have in Christ. And it seems strange that Paul now stops to say, while I've just told you all that, the reality is by nature, you are filthy and black and dead and you love to walk according to the course of the world and you are under the sway of the evil one and you love by nature to fulfill the desires of the flesh and the mind. Paul essentially takes us down to the basement and he says, let me remind you of what you were before you were in Christ and how wretched and useless, and miserable, and depraved, and rebellious. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say, well, you know, those people who have rebelled, you know them. He says, we all, we all, we all. Paul includes himself. Paul includes the totality of the old covenant people. And Paul includes the Ephesians to whom he's writing, many of whom were Gentile converts many of whom thought themselves spiritual. You know, one of the marked features of Ephesus was that great temple to Diana. And, and you'll remember when Paul goes in in Acts chapter 19 and he preaches the gospel that this was one of those sort of spiritual new age cities, that th these were people that thought themselves spiritual. By the way, everybody today thinks themselves spiritual. 
Well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm a spiritual person. I'll tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. And you know what? You are spiritual. You're, you're a spiritually darkened individual by nature. You are deeply spiritual, and you are deeply darkened in the darkness of fallen, depraved, dead, wretched, miserable condition by nature. Everybody. You know, um, John Calvin, in his sermon on this, has page after page after page after page about how miserable and wretched everybody is. And you're kind of like, come on, I get it, Calvin. We're bad. We're really bad. And then it hit me as I'm reading this. Why did Calvin feel a need to just keep going and going and going? Very interesting. Paul will actually return to this in chapter 4. And he'll say, remember at that time, you were darkened in your understanding. And, and you're like, okay, Paul, you already told us this in chapter 2. And I think like Calvin, he understands that we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear how bad we are. We want to hear how bad they are over there. Who, who is they? Anybody else but me? Tell us about how bad they are. Tell me how bad the Kardashians are. Tell me how bad some hip-hop artist is. Tell me how bad some movie star that's really immoral and idolatrous is. But don't tell me. But Paul brings it home, and he, he takes them down, and he starts to show them the intricacies of just how bad everyone is by nature. Now, before we consider more the wretched condition of man apart from Christ, I want to point out something I think is probably a connection here. The very last thing that Paul prayed that the Ephesians would see and and would have the eyes of their hearts open to see was the exceeding greatness of the power of God that works in those who believe according to his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The last thing that Paul has prayed that they would see and would experience and know is resurrection power. And I think what Paul is doing as he comes into chapter 2 and he deals with the wretchedness of man and the wretchedness of all men apart from Christ is he is explaining to them how they've already experienced something of this power in their conversion, that what they were was dead and what they needed to be was resurrected. You know, people often say Christianity is a crutch. And I like to say, oh, no, no, no. Christianity is far more than a crutch. It is a resurrection. Christianity is far more. If Christianity is a crutch, if it helps you get through things, then you have not experienced the Christianity of Jesus and the apostles. Christianity is a resurrection from the dead. What it means to be a Christian is that you have been raised from spiritual death. It's not that you're just sort of bad or that you, God wants this and I come here and I know that fails. But notice what Paul says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, Paul does something very interesting as he talks about the, the wretched condition of men apart from Christ by nature. And what he does is he first says that we are dead in sins. He first, 
He doesn't go to Satan, and he doesn't go to the world first. He first says the problem is in our hearts. The problem is in our minds. The problem is in our wills and our affections and the totality of what we are fallen in Adam. He takes it back to the garden, and he says we were dead. You'll remember when God comes to Adam, and he gives him the command concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, in dying you will die. In dying you will die. And then the question is, why didn't Adam die right when he ate the fruit? I mean, he didn't die. He lived 930 years. He died. He died. Remember, he, he hid behind the trees that God had made, thinking somehow God couldn't see through the tree that he made. He lost the knowledge of God. He died spiritually. He wasn't just crippled and wounded. He died. He spent, he spent the better part of his first years dead in sins and trespasses. He blames Eve. He suppresses the truth about God. He hides behind the trees that God has made. He tries himself righteously to cover himself with the fig leaves that God has made to fix the shame of his nakedness. He is not just wounded, he is dead. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually often surprised when I hear Christians say things about unbelievers that they see walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, dead in sins and trespasses. Well, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not that bad a person. No. They are much, 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 as were you by nature, much worse than you know, much worse. Um, that's the glorious thing about the gospel, and we're going to talk about that tonight, that in order to understand the glory of the grace of God and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, we have to understand how wretched we are by nature. We have to come face to face. We've got to go to the mirror of God's word, and we have to see all the blackness and all of the maredness and all of the deadness in order to see our need for spiritual resurrection and life. Now, Paul doesn't just say you were dead in trespasses and sins. He doesn't just say you were, you were living an, a completely sinful life. But he goes on to say that all men by nature are also under the course of the world and the prince of the power in the air. It's sin. It's, it's Satan's sin and the world. It's the trifecta of this fallen world. It is all of those things and they are working in harmony and they fit perfectly and they fit naturally and they feel right and men and women and boys and girls by nature do not like to admit what they are because everybody else is what they are and the world around them is, is, is very fitting. It fits. Being dead in sins and trespasses, under the sway of the evil one, Walking with everybody else according to the course of the world fits. You know, when people talk about peer pressure, it's not peer pressure, it's course of the world pressure. It's course of the world pressure. It's prince of the power of the air pressure. It's not peer pressure. It's, it's dead in sins together with all these other people who are also walking this way and heading the complete opposite direction from what God has intended. That's the world that we live in. You know, men love to convince themselves that they are reconciled to God and know God and not 
dead in sins and trespasses, when in, and not under the sway of the evil one, when in fact they are. I had a friend many, many years ago who said something that profoundly impacted me. He said the greatest, the greatest tragedy or the, the most frightening thing about self-deception is that you don't know that you're deceived. I was like, man, why'd you have to say that? <laughs> the, 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 the scariest thing about self-deception, and, and most people in this fallen world are self-deceived, is that you don't know you're deceiving yourself and that you're just going with the course of the world. And so Paul will not spare in telling them. And, and probably the, the, the greatest insult, if we can say that, and the most needful thing that Paul tells them as he summarizes what the Ephesians were who thought themselves to be deeply spiritual. Remember, they burned their books when they were finally converted and brought from death to life. They brought all their magic books and their witchcraft books out, and they burned them publicly. And, and that faux spirituality and that faux, um, that faux religious mindset that they thought they had as they worshiped uh, in the temple of Diana and as they gave themselves over to the darkness of occult practices and, and new age, what, exactly what we're facing today, nothing new under the sun, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, that, that when they finally were brought to death from death to life and realized what they were doing, they realized how they had been everything that Paul had said they were. And probably the greatest thing Paul says here is in the end of verse 3. Notice, he says, we were, by nature, children of wrath. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Um, Paul has this way of explaining this in Romans 1 and into chapter 2, where he essentially says that all men, by nature, outside of Christ, apart from Christ, are storing up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You could, you, could, you could think of it this way, that what we do by nature outside of Christ is we just keep shoveling money away into the bank of wrath that's going to break open on our heads if we're not in Christ. Or you could think of it like a balloon just filling up over us. And as we go along in the course of the world and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind and walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the balloon is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger over our heads with wrath. Um, I remember just before I was converted, I was sitting outside of the country club I cooked at, and I remember sitting there thinking, when is God going to save me or kill me? And essentially, I, I realized the Lord was making me realize I was storing up wrath and that something had to happen, that, that you can't just continue on and nothing happen. You can't just continue on. And, and by nature, Paul says, we were children of wrath. Now, for those of us who are Christians, the great encouragement is that he's writing to them as Christian believers. That's a good encouragement. He's writing to them as Christian believers, and he's saying, look, this is what we were. I love how Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, don't be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, fornicators, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, sodomites, drunkards, extortioners. And then he says, such were some of you, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul's writing to them 
as Christian believers, a marvelous illustration that there is great power and mercy in God. And Paul's moving to that. Uh, I've told you this in the past. One of the most famous sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones is called But God. The sermon is called But God. He preached it on numerous occasions. And what Lloyd-Jones points out is how Paul is now moving, secondly, to the greatness of the mercy of God in Christ. Notice verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Lloyd-Jones says this. These two words, but God, these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. John Gerstner, in what I think is his most memorable, and he had many memorable statements, wrote this. He said, but God, think how wonderful it is that the words that follow are but God rather than and God. Verse 4 should be and God, who is perfectly just and holy. Gerstner said, and God would mean the inevitable ruin, the dread judgment, following this awful description of us as transgressors and sinners, slaves of Satan and our our flesh, by nature children of God, and God could only spell the expected doom. While we are waiting to be taken to the dungeon of gloom and misery, what do we hear? But, but, why that means the unexpected, that means hope, but and not and, something unexpected, something other than the anticipated doom. I love that. It is the most radical turning point in anything that Paul writes. He takes us down to the basement. He shows us all the ugliness, all the depravity, all of the misery, all of the sin, all of the horrible condition, all of how we have marred the image of God. And he turns around and he says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, Paul is going to do two things, and and very helpful uh, for us to think about this. Paul is now going to spend the rest of the time in this text, and he's going to set out the two pillars of the riches of the glory of the God of mercy and grace. He's going to hold out the greatness of the mercy of God, and then he's going to hold out the greatness of the grace of God. Now, you may say, wait, aren't they the same thing? No, they're not. They're not the same thing. The first thing that Paul fixates on is the mercy of God, not giving us what we deserve. And God would have been God saying, I will deal with them according to their sins. But God is him saying, I will not deal with them according to their sins. I will forgive their iniquities and their transgressions and their sins. He told us how he did it back in chapter 1, verse 7, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in the blood of Jesus. All of that depravity, all of that hostility, all of that enmity, All of that blackness and darkness, everything that you are by nature was washed clean in the blood. I don't know. I don't know what they used to restore those paintings. I'm sure they had some kind of wonderful chemical restorative products. You have the blood of Jesus to wash you clean, not to give you what you deserve, to wipe out the record, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us, and has been nailed to the cross. You know, I often say this to you, and I'm just, I'm going to keep saying this. We need to hear that every day of our lives. Every day of our lives, we need to remember 
how God has been merciful to us. Because you know what? The moment we forget that is the moment we try to sow the fig leaves of self-righteous pride and attempts to quiet guilty conscience and to make up for what's wrong. We try to do that. You know, um, there are times when I have sinned and known I've sinned and I'm strange, I'm odd, I know I'm odd, I get that, and maybe you're nothing like this, but instead of going to God and confessing my sin, I start cleaning the house. I'm weird, I get it. But what I'm doing, and you probably do that in different ways, is trying to atone for my sin and trying to clean myself up. And what the apostle says is, God, who is rich in mercy, he's rich in mercy, Think about that. He is rich in mercy. I love the way the prophet, uh, I believe it's Micah, says he delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. The holy and just God, the judge of all the earth, delights in mercy and is rich in mercy and loves to cleanse his people with the blood of his son. And yet, it's not just the forgiveness of sins. It's not just us not getting what we deserve. It's not just God suspending his wrath. It's not just God saying, I will not pour out all my wrath on them. But thirdly, notice what the apostle is doing. He is showing us that, that beyond that, God has done everything for us in Jesus. He is now moving from the greatness of the mercy of God in Jesus to the greatness of the grace of God, the mercy of God providing forgiveness and atonement for those sins, blotting out the guilt and iniquity, and, and the grace of God in bringing us to glory and raising us up to newness of life and giving us a spiritual resurrection. Notice what Paul says. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And seated us in the heavenly places with him so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved. Now, this is one of those passages, just like what Paul does in his prayer at the end of chapter 1. Remember, we saw that last week when Paul is trying to explain the greatness of the power God has and he keeps heaping up those phrases. It's as if he's hyperbole gone wild, and he's just trying to explain how much power, the greatness of his power that works in those who believe according to his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he's trying to find an adequate way to help you understand how great it is. And Paul's doing that again now as he talks about the greatness of the grace of God. He, he says, look, the grace of God has come, and, it, and God has manifested that grace in your life by raising you from the dead, and not only by raising you from the dead, but by positionally seating you in the heavenly places in Jesus, because that's where he is, and we're united to him by faith. This is all union with Christ stuff. Raised from the dead, and as if that wasn't enough, seated in the heavenly places in Christ, so if you're united to Jesus right now, you are sitting in Richmond Hill and you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. That's one of those privileges Sinclair Ferguson says, we live well below the line 
of experiencing and, and meditating on. That you're not just struggling to get through another day. How, how that would change everything if we actually got that. That I'm not just struggling to get through another day, and I don't just need grace for another day, but that I'm already seated in the heavenly places in Jesus. That I am secure in him. I love the thought that when Jesus, as our representative, dying in our place on the cross, and, and you'll remember uh, Gerstner has that famous saying uh, about that hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And he says, you bet you were there. You were nailed to that cross with him in union with him. Your sin was placed on him. He was united to your person, your sinful, depraved, child of wrath person on the cross. And then when he commits his spirit to the Father, the last thing that Jesus says before he dies, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is committing the spirits of all those who are united to him and for whom he is dying. That is a marvelously comforting thought. And when he steps out of the grave... We came out of the grave with him. We were buried with him. When he, his lifeless body was put in the tomb, our old man was put away, put away from the presence of God. And when he steps out of that tomb and breathes the air of the new creation as the first glorified being, the first fruits of the new creation, we stepped out with him. This thrills my heart, by the way, to think about that. That's what gets Christians excited. And then... When he ascended, we ascended with him. And when he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Paul says that we are now seated positionally with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And then, if that's not enough, as Paul's trying to explain the greatness of the grace of God and the glory of God's great grace, he says, notice this, I love this, he says, so that in the coming ages... In the coming ages, verse 7, he might show the immeasurable riches. You can't measure them. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. So Paul says that the grace of God has come to us in the present because of what Jesus has done in our union with him and the spiritual resurrection we've undergone. And Paul says there is future grace awaiting us that in the coming ages, that God wants to manifest the greatness of his grace to us because of his great love toward us by breaking open on your head for all eternity his kindness in Christ Jesus on you. Now, remember what he said you were. He took us down to the depths, so he takes us up to the heights. That's why Ephesians 2 is so important. He takes us down to the basement, to see all the gloom and all the misery and all the depravity and all the ugliness. And then he brings us up and he says, for all eternity, you are going to be the trophies of God's grace displayed in the trophy room of heaven. Not just to be looked at by each other, but to experience the overflowing kindness. I, I can't even, I don't even know. I don't know what that's going to be like. I just know I want it. I don't know what it's going to be like to experience the immeasurable greatness of the grace of God in breaking open his kindness for all eternity. 
kindness, 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 love, goodness, goodness, bounty, blessing forever and ever and ever and ever. I haven't even had one day of that, one full day. Usually when I have a good day, it goes horribly wrong at the end of the day. I don't know if you've experienced that. I can't think of one day I was like, man, that was a great day. Everything was just great. It's either really hard in the morning, really hard the whole day. The staff, the staff here knows. Really hard in the morning, really hard the whole day, or really terrible at the end of the day. And yet God says for all eternity, the greatness of his grace is that he's just going to just break blessing and goodness and kindness and love, and he's going to show you more of the riches. He's going to say, essentially to us, come, come, my son and my daughter, come, I've adopted you, come and look at this. Here's another room full of my masterpieces, and we're going to see each other. And you know what Paul says here? Notice this. He, he, he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. He keeps reminding them. It's by grace. It's through faith. It's not anything you did. You didn't clean yourself up. You didn't save yourself. You didn't turn your life around. I, I can't stand, I cannot stand when people that knew me before I was converted say, well, you know, we all grow up sometime. Yeah, and some of us are raised from the dead. Some of us are raised from the dead. And, and it's by grace. And it's through faith in Christ. And it's not anything that we did. And we didn't contribute anything. And you see that Paul is at pains to remind them of that. And lest, lest we walk away from this tonight and say, that's wonderful. And we don't think that all of this includes the image of God being transformed in us. Paul adds that glorious description at the end. What does, what does the mercy and the grace of God do? What do those twin graces do in the lives of believers? Notice this. Not a result of work so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created or recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What, what, is, what is the implication of, of these things? The implication is you have already been brought from death to life. Everything that we talked about, about present grace has occurred if you're in Christ. There is future grace awaiting you, and yet in the in-between of the present grace we've experienced and the future grace that awaits us, God is displaying in this fallen world his workmanship, his his masterpieces. He is, he is, you essentially are glorious works of art, a people that display the mercy and grace of God in Christ to a world walking in darkness by the good works that he is now working out through you and for his glory and to show forth his praise and to bring him all the boasting and all the glory for fixing what was marred to the point of destruction and damnation. And that's the church. The church is God's great gallery. Now, I think if we thought about ourselves that way, and we thought, you know, I am God's workmanship. I was useless, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, dead. And God chose to have mercy on me, and he chose to be gracious to me. And he wants to show me more of that grace. And all of eternity is going to be grace, 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 goodness, kindness. Why would I not want to live for him in the here and now 
as a spiritually raised new creation, a glorious painting of his grace. Um, I hope that this is an encouragement to you to reflect on what you are by nature and what you've become by grace and what God has awaiting you by grace and what he intends to do through you in the here and now by grace. I think that's, Paul's trying to do, deal with the past, the present, and the future of God's mercy and grace to us in Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we are at a loss to even begin to understand these things, except that we know that we have experienced resurrection power and we are thankful that we are not what we were, that we know that we, our God, are not what we will one day be in all of the restorative beauty and glory of Christ. We thank you that you are assuring our hearts of this and that you are giving us the purposes of your grace and the greatness of your mercy and grace in Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to live in light of the knowledge of these things, to be zealous for the good works that you have created us for, to rest in all that we are in you, and to anticipate all that we will have with you in glory. We pray, our God, that you would stir up our hearts and minds tonight with these things and that we would respond with gratitude and joy and praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.